Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we are here once again on our twice-monthly mission <laughs> to bring to you all of the times in history where we effed up. It could be thrice-monthly. There could be three, or five Tuesdays in a month, and we could hit three of those. Infrequent. Infrequent, but possible. Probably not this year. Yeah. Anywho, what are we talking about today, Cody? Aside from thrice monthly, thrice Tuesday months. Talk about the Suez Canal, or as some people say, the Suez Canal. Nobody has ever said that. I think I've heard it a few times. Who said that? (laughs) I don't know. Somebody said it before. No. Yeah. That's the first time it's ever been uttered in history. (laughs) And ergo, never say it again. There's a reason why it's not called the Canal. But it could be. Sounds like anal. Gee, I wonder if that was the joke. Hmm. Hmm. That wasn't much of a joke. Hmm. If it was a joke. Still better than you come up with. Sounds false. Anyway, the F up isn't related, isn't the canal itself, but is what would happen to it during the Suez Crisis. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So uh, the Suez Canal, it's a canal that cuts through Egypt where the Sinai Peninsula meets the African continent and connects the Mediterranean Sea with the Red Sea. And here you can see like kind of a map of it. I can tell that that is an incredibly important area. Yes. To get to the Gulf of Suez. Yeah, and really just it's put in kind of a larger context. It's a... Essentially, a shortcut between Europe and Asia. Right, right. So it's, you don't have to circumnavigate the, circumnavigate the entire African continent. So. Or fly. Well, I mean, this was it was built at the time before airplanes. So. Of course. Uh, it's over 120 miles long from Port Said in the north to Port Suez in the south. Uh, constructed between 1859 and 1869 under the auspices of Ferdinand de Lesseps, a French diplomat. At the time, Egypt was an autonomous province of the Ottoman Empire. The country was ruled by a wali, or a governor. Okay. Uh, so it, like, it's nominally under Ottoman control, but it's kind of left to run its own affairs. Okay, makes sense. Uh, the holding company that owned the canal, the creatively named Suez Canal Company, <laughs> was a 50-50 venture between the French government and the wali of Egypt, Said Pasha. Okay. So, half owned by France, half owned by Egypt. So, or at least the ruler of Egypt. Uh, in 1875, Said Pasha's successor, Ismail Pasha, sold his portion to the British government. I have a question. That You said that the area was owned half and half? Yeah, the canal was half and half. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, and maybe this doesn't matter, but it was it, like, split directly in half? Like... <laughs> Like how how no, was it, no, or did it, was, it just mean that they they like put in fifty fifty on the money? Put in fifty fifty on the money. Okay, and got fifty fifty on the returns. So it wasn't like okay, well this half is France. No 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 okay. no no no. It's it's run by a company, and the each of these governments own half the company. Oh okay. So okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So once the money hits the company, then it's basically like countryless kind yeah, of. Yeah, sort of. Okay. Um. But like I said, eight seventy five, the British they purchased the Egyptian half. So now it's half French, half British, and none Egyptian. It's great. Yep. 
Uh, Britain viewed the canal as important to its control over India and its other Asian colonies as it cut the travel between Britain and Asia drastically. Oh, I see where this is going. Yep. Uh, Unrest in Egypt in 1882 saw the British launch an invasion and occupy the country, which was still technically an Ottoman possession, but it was really controlled by the British, which if you think back to our um, Oscar Potioric episode, we talked about Bosnia. Uh, It's kind of a similar situation where technically the Ottomans are the rulers of Bosnia, but the Austrians are the ones running it. Right. Uh, several decades at the end of the 19th century, so it's kind of a similar situation. The Ottomans technically own Egypt, but the British are running it. They're running the show. Uh, In 1914, with the outbreak of the First World War, which put Britain and the Ottoman Empire on opposite sides, uh, the UK formally brought Egypt into its empire, creating the Sultanate of Egypt. Okay. So. Interesting. uh, Following the war, a revolt broke out in 1919, demanding complete independence. Uh, and in 1922, Egypt granted, or the UK granted Egypt its independence. Although Britain still retained control of several uh, government institutions and kept a military force in the country. So, like an embassy type situation, maybe? N- more than that. A lot okay. more than that. Um, think. Think Iraq after we invaded it. Oh, okay. And we. We're kind of in charge of everything Would a for pup- a while. Puppet state, uh, okay. S- sort of. Like we have a large military presence in the country and heavily influencing their yes. politics. Yes. So, so why did Britain decide to give Egypt its independent or quote unquote independence? Throw a bone to the people protesting for it. Oh. So they're like, "Hey, well, you're independent. This is what you wanted." Okay. So. Just seems weird. It, yeah, it, it's just a way to it's just manipulate their control. So know, they, if they have to, like, you know, cross this T or dot this I, you know. So they basically said, okay, Egypt, you are autonomous now. You have your independence. But really, they were still kind of puppeteering yeah. things behind the scenes. Yeah, and they still have, like, still have their military there. Because they still need that Suez Canal as a vital... Sure. Artery to India, so so placating the masses so that they can continue that thoroughfare, yes. access to that thoroughfare. Yes, I see. Uh, 1936, with the Second World War on the horizon, Egypt negotiated the complete withdrawal of British forces from the country, except for those around the Canal Zone, who would be withdrawn after 20 years. So 1956. So okay. Keep that in mind. So not that them not knowing that you know this massive world war is about to happen uh, it, it, people can kind of sense that s- stuff may go down here soon and egypt is like well britain will definitely be involved in it we really don't want to get invaded by their like by the nazis mm-hmm. you know just because the british troops are here mm-hmm. so maybe let's try to get as much many much of them out of the country as possible i see um Except for that around the canal zone. So. Well, they need to protect it. Yeah. Have, uh, well, it's well, very the, important. The canal did prove crucial to the Allies during the war as the link to India was maintained and supplies of oil kept the Allied war machine functioning. Wow. Yeah. So, And, and the war did come to Egypt briefly. Um, the Nazis and the Italians kind of marched across North Africa, uh, but they were turned back. Uh, they nearly captured Alexandria, but they are 
turn back at the Battle of El Alamein and just kind of kept retreating, retreating, retreating until they were kicked out of North Africa. So, October 1951, the Egyptian government terminated that treaty with Britain and demanded that the UK remove its troops from the canal zone immediately. So okay. Egypt is just like, all right, we were coming close to the end of this treaty anyway. Can you please just remove your troops? Well, Britain refused to do so, because it's Britain. And on July 23rd, 1952, a coup removed Egypt's monarchy, replacing it with a more nationalist military junta. What? What's the last word you said? Junta. Okay. J-U-N-T-A. I don't know what that is. It's like a, like usually when there's a, like a military coup, there's usually like a small like cabal of officers who are leading it. Right. And they usually kind of share power. That's typically what's called a military junta. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, uh, one of the leaders of this nationalist revolution was Lieutenant Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser. And I will show you a picture of him. So a little bit about Nasser, because he's uh, one of the key players in this situation. Uh, born on January 15th, 1918, in Alexandria. Uh, he took part in protests against British rule while he was a student. Okay. So uh, he joined the military in 1938. Uh, he participated in the 1948-49 Arab-Israeli War. Uh, this is the war that, like, as soon as Israel declared independence, like, a bunch of the Arab countries surrounding it were like, no, and they invaded. Oh, okay. And Israel, Israel beat them all, so. Okay. Um, that basically, that really wanted to kind of underscore their sovereignty, probably, yeah, yeah. at that point. Uh, Nasser, he rose to the ranks, eventually obtaining the rank of lieutenant colonel. Uh, and he joined the Free Officers Movement, a cabal of top military leaders that overthrew the Egyptian monarchy in July 1952. Wow. And okay. he began taking on a larger role in the Revolutionary Command Council, which is the military group that ruled the country. RCC? Yes, but he and eventually took over leadership in November 1954. So, uh, about the same time Nasser takes full control, um, Egypt negotiates a new treaty with Britain in which all British troops would withdraw within 20 months. Okay. And the Suez Canal Company would be turned over to the Egyptian government in 1968. Okay. So 14 years from the moment that treaty is signed. Okay. So just not really decreasing it a lot? No. I mean, I mean, I guess six years. I mean, a lot can happen in six years. But they're basically saying, we're going to take this over, shorten timeline, get ready. Your troops got to be out. Well, the in troops have months. to be gone in 20 months. Right. The Suez Canal Company gets turned over to Egypt in 1968. Right, right. So 14 years. So, But their troops have to be gone like oh, yeah, ASAP. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, under Nasser, Egypt began uh, to move towards a middle way between the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And this is kind of like forming around this time what's called the non-aligned movement. They're just like, we just don't want to be on either side. We just kind of want to do our own thing. You know what? I feel that. Yeah, it's like Egypt, uh, Yugoslavia uh, were kind of key leaders in that, India, so... Uh, Nasser was an Arab nationalist seeking to unite the Arab world as a counterweight to the imperialism of both the West and the Soviet bloc. Uh, relations with Israel were tense. Uh, and as I mentioned, Egypt, along with other Arab states, had been defeated by Israel in 1949. 
after Israel was established as a country. Right. Uh, in February 1955, an Israeli commando unit raided an Egyptian army headquarters in the Gaza Strip, leading to reprisals. Oh, boy. Uh, because after that initial war, um, Egypt moved in and contr- t- uh, took control of the Gaza Strip, and Jordan moved in and c- uh, took control of the West Bank. Okay. Um, uh, Nasser sought to put the Egyptian military on par with Israel, uh, to whom Nasser was, app- was opposed, and he wanted to purchase American weapons. Oh, boy. Uh, And this failed because the United States was Israel's ally. So they're already supplying them with weapons. So America says no. So Nasser turns to the Soviets. Already getting to the point where we're like, yes, you know, selectively doling out weapons to people. Yep. Hate that. Uh, Soviets (laughs) reach an agreement with Nasser, and Nasser purchases $83 million in arms in September 1955. Wow. How mi- I wonder how much that is in today's dollars. I didn't look it up. What was the number? $83 million. Okay. Uh, Nasser opposed continued British domination of the Middle East and pressured Jordan and Syria into refusing to join the Baghdad Pact and attempted a British-led military alliance in the Middle East. Great. It's, uh... Might as well just call it a billion dollars. Yeah. A billion dollars in weapons. That, uh... Wow. Yep. Uh, Nasser also supported the independence of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, France's colonies in North Africa. So he's antagonizing both the British and the French. But kind of rightly so. So. In June 1956, with the adoption of a new constitution, the military junta was dissolved and Nasser became president of Egypt. So they dissolved the military rule and so he became the president? Yes. Sounds good. That doesn't, it just doesn't sound like a president. <laughs> like a, appointing somebody post military rule. I mean, the president, I mean, any leader can, uh, that leads a country can just be called a president. I know. I, mean, I just. Doesn't have to be an American style elected guy. So. In my mind, it, it doesn't sound good. Uh, hoping to jumpstart the Egyptian economy, Nasser hoped to obtain American funding for the Aswan Dam project. The dam, located in the south of the country, would help regulate the legendary Nile floods, as well as provide large amounts of electricity through hydroelectric generation. Which is quite important. Yes. Uh, While initially in favor of the project, the United States, citing the Soviet arms deal, the tensions with Israel, and Egypt's recognition of communist China in May 1956, withdrew its pledged funding. Oh, great. So Nasser, he's president now. He's got this big, huge project he wants to roll out. And he didn't have any money for it. So and now just, he's losing he's losing allies because yeah. of his of their political decisions. So just keep that in mind. So just hold that thought. That's where Nasser and Egypt are in the summer of nineteen fifty six. He's got a big project and no cash. Yep. Story of my life. So now we have to kinda shift gears for a moment. Okay. And talk about Britain and France after the Second World War. Okay. Where they're at. Because remember, they're the two owners of the canal. Right. So. I know Britain's doing real bad. Yes. Post-World War II. Yes. They're out of money. Uh, they had a budget deficit of $27 billion, oh, which... Oh, God. I, I mean, the, here, here in the United States, that's like... It's like, wow, so, that that's the best we ever did. <laughs> yeah. We have budget deficits of a trillion dollars regularly, so... I Yeah, I shouldn't laugh. Uh, but funny. yeah, they had a budget deficit. I mean, this is also like 1945, so... A lot of money. 
uh, and they are, of course, heavily indebted to the United States. In order to cut expenses, Britain was forced to reduce its military budget and pull back from its overseas empire. India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Burma were granted independence in 1947 and 1948, and the UN mandates that they had over Palestine and Jordan were ended. Uh, rebellions in Kenya and Malaysia and unrest in Iran, see episode one, taxed British resources. Uh, an inward focus after the war, led by Labour Prime Minister Clement Attlee, also contributed to the waning of British overseas power. Yeah. This is when like they're like kind of focused on rebuilding their societies, but like national health services introduced, they nationalized like railroads and energy, like all sorts of like it's a, like we have to focus on ourselves first. Right. We so, don't have any money. A bunch yes. of people died. Let's figure it out here. Uh, several wartime austerity measures had to be maintained for years after the war, such as rationing. Oh, God. Um, in October 1951, Attlee's government was defeated in a general election, and Winston Churchill returned to power. Right. After having been ousted by Attlee in July 1945. Right. However, Churchill was very old by this point. Uh, his Ancient. health was in decline. He was drinking constantly. Winston Churchill might be the best example of what's called a functioning alcoholic. Yeah. He was ever just, in history. He was pickling himself. He's laying in the bath all the time. Like you can look up like his daily consumption and it's like, it, it, how? <laughs> and he lived to be like in his eighties, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he must've just had a really good like stress relief regime. Oh uh, yeah. Because there's no way, there's no way that if I was under that much stress, if you, if you were PM, Prime Minister during the largest war in the history of humanity. Yeah, <laughs> and over Britain, which was heavily involved in that war. Yeah, you were pres- Prime Minister for that, and then you had to come back after the war when your country is decimated. Yeah, you would die tomorrow. Well, uh, his health was in decline. He resigned as Prime Minister in April 1955. Succeeded by his longtime foreign secretary and our effort for today, Anthony Eden. So okay, Anthony Eden, and you said he's the the su- successor successor to Winston Churchill. The successor to Winston Churchill is like the second time he was prime minister. Right, right, right. So. Yep. Uh, a little bit about Eden. Uh, born on June twelfth, eighteen ninety seven, in Rushford, England. Uh, he attended Eton College, very prestigious, uh, followed by service in the British Army during the First World War, where he became a decorated major. Right. Uh, I I remember this guy now. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he was elected to Parliament in 1923 as a member of the Conservative Party, and he would continue the next couple decades in several various ministerial roles. Well, why not? I mean, if it, you're basically a shoe in Like, yeah. once you get in there, you're not getting out. You're not yeah. giving up that cushy life. Uh, he was most notably Foreign Secretary in Winston Churchill's war and post-war cabinet. So he's, he's the guy who's, you know, managing relations with other countries during the Second World War. So very important job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's, he's, and he's, at this point, he's really just seen as uh, Churchill's, like, right-hand man and, like, hand-picked successor. So once Churchill decides to resign, uh, he recommends that Eden be, uh, be his replacement. All right. So. Cool. Makes sense. So that's where Britain is right now. In France, the government was rebuilt from the ground up after years of Nazi occupation with the introduction of a new constitution in October 1946. So how do we get the French Fourth Republic? Unlike the UK, the French economic recovery was quick. 
However, it still had a large colonial empire to maintain. Ugh. In Indochina, France suffered an embarrassing defeat at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in May 1954 and was forced to grant independence to Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Morocco and Tunisia were also granted independence in North Africa in order to concentrate resources on holding Algeria, which France regarded as an integral part of the country. Okay. So, like, if you ever hear anybody refer to metropolitan France, mm-hmm. have you ever heard that phrase before? Not to my knowledge. Or they call it, like, the metropole? I've heard metropole. That's kind of referring to, like, what we like what you think of as, like, France, like, in Europe. Mm-hmm. There's also, like, several areas that are France, like French Guinea, mm-hmm. or French Guiana in South, in South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few scattered islands in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. According to France, those are France. They get representatives in the uh, legislature. Like, they are essentially just treated as any other piece of France. And that's kind of how they see Algeria at this time. It has, like, the departments. They get representatives in the French legislature. Like, to them, this is France. Okay. Yep. More, like, more than just a colony. Or, like, a territory? More than that. It'd yeah. Be, yeah. So like a state. Kind of like it, Alaska. Alaska yeah. is the United States, even it's though it is not you attached. Know, connected. Yeah. <laughs> not, not attached uh, directly, anyways. Yes. Or like Hawaii. Hawaii is the United States. Okay. Okay. That's kind of okay. how they see it. Okay. Now, the native Algerians? Probably not. Probably not. It's yeah. it, if, if you've never seen Dress to Kill by Eddie Izzard, I just have to recommend it again because this is totally another situation where it's like, well, do you have a flag? <laughs> you know, like the British yeah. or the French or some colonizers we'll, we'll, show we'll, up and we'll, they say, we'll talk about you- a specific flag here later. It's kind of an interesting effect of all this. Okay. We'll, we'll get on that. So, so that's just kind of where France, Britain, and Egypt are at this time. Okay. <clears throat> so... So Britain, struggling to recover. France, kind of humiliated at this point, but trying to protect Algeria. Yes. Egypt is like, get the hell out of here. We want we want our canal back. And we're trying In to build a dam. In 14 years. We're trying to build this dam. We have no cash. Yep. And, and British troops need to be the hell out of here. And Israel is just always lurking over the border, just staring at them. Yes. Yes. Staring very intently. Yep. Like, what, what are they doing over there? They're like a nosy yeah. neighbor. <laughs> One of the uh, early Israeli generals, a guy named Moshe Dayan, uh, he 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 wore an eye patch. Uh-huh. So I'm just imagining like this like battle hardened, scarred guy in an eye patch, just looking over the Egyptian border, just like, oh, gosh, what was his name? Moshe Dayan. Did he wear it because he had a scar? I think he's missing an eye. Oh. So, but anyway. Okay. Uh, March 1956, Nasser pressured King Hussein of Jordan. To dismiss the military British or the, the British military officers advising the Jordanian government. So, okay. like Britain, like Jordan had been a British mandate after the First World War, and they granted independence in forty six or forty eight. Excuse me, um, but Britain still has like military advisors and that type of thing, uh, you know. And but Jordan dismisses those under pressure from Nasser. And Eden, up to this point, like, he'd been foreign secretary. He'd been, you know, Churchill's right of man. He know, like, he's had his eye on Nasser for a while, and he hasn't, he is like, has not liked what he's been doing. Because it's like, you know, oh, 
This nationalist guy wants his country to be powerful. Well, no, we we British can't have that. They can't be having it from these, you know, colonial subjects yeah. to the crown. Yeah. How dare they? Yeah. How Who do they think so they are? Tea time. Uh, Eden saw Nasser as a populist dictator similar to Mussolini. Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. which, uh, And this uh, influence that Nasser had over Jordan to dismiss the British military advisors uh, is a quote from a British politi- another British politician. A quote, for Eden, this was the la- for Eden, this was the last straw. This reverse, he insisted, was Nasser's doing. That I don't know what you're doing. I was trying you're... to do a British accent. I can't do a good British accent. Yeah, you like ended up going into like zap Br- brain again. Hmm. Like, this... no, I, I, yeah, it's right like if straight. if William Shatner was trying to be a British person. <laughs> That's what it just sounded like. For. Eden. Oh my God! Just keep going. This was the last straw. No. Lord. For Eden, this was the last straw. This reverse, he insisted, was Nasser's doing. Nasser was our enemy number one in the Middle East, and he would not rest until he destroyed all our friends and eliminated the last vestiges of our influence. Nasser must therefore be destroyed. Must be destroyed. Quote. On July twenty sixth, nineteen fifty six, Nasser, with no warning, nationalized the Suez Canal. Okay. The assets of the Suez Canal Company were frozen. Stockholders will be compensated at that day's closing stock price, and the canal was closed to Israeli shipping. Like he sends in the troops and just takes it over. Wow. Wow. Okay. Eden was at a state dinner for Iraqi King Faisal II when he was informed of the takeover. Uh, the British public were outraged, as were the French, led by Prime Minister Guy Mollet. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Canada began talks to mediate the crisis. Uh, Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies proposed international management of the canal, which Nasser rejected. Eden began marshalling support for a military solution, despite American warnings not to do so. Yeah. The UK began making invasion plans. France and Israel began making their own invasion plans in case the UK declined to participate. Uh, Britain was initially hesitant to include Israel in the operation due to the, the potential backlash from Arab countries, but acquiesced. They were just like, look, we we need to teach this guy a lesson. You can't, oh, you, boy. You can't take our stuff. <laughs> you can't take our stuff. This is where he F's up. Oh, no. At Eden's direction, Britain signed the Protocol of Sevra on October 24th, 1956 with France and Israel. Under the terms, Israel would invade the Sinai Peninsula on October 29th, while Britain and France would invade the Canal Zone itself on October 31st. So what what day did they sign this? October 24th. So they had five days before Israel invaded, and then two additional days before France and Britain invaded. Yep. Because the colonial powers are pissed, and Israel is their ally, so they're like... Israel is like, sees an opportunity here. Right. So They're They're trying to get in where they fit in. Yeah. I get it. At 3 p.m. on October 29th, Israeli air forces began bombing Egyptian uh, positions on the peninsula. Oh, God. On October 31st, Anglo-French air forces began bombing the canal itself. Why did you do that? Well, Egyptian positions along the canal. Oh, Nasser responded by sinking 40 ships in the canal itself, closing it to traffic. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Uh, Like, easy peasy, all we're going to do, like... Okay, well, I just shut down this company. I have no current vested interest, aside from the fact that we're going to nationalize it. 
If you yeah. come at me, I'm going to shut the damn thing down, and then you have no access. Yep. What He's, the hell? And you see, like, this is kind of like the initial invasion path. Like, Israel just comes in, like, just blows across the Sinai Peninsula, mm-hmm. and then France and Britain invade this, like, red area here, and they kind of link up. And Israel is, is uh, they have paratroops, and they're... Yeah. They're flying over there. Yeah, as well. and, they, and they have to, like they're basically just in full scale invasion of the Sinai Peninsula too. So. Can you give me an idea of scale? That that map is not uh, super big. Like, can you estimate size wise, like how big that is, how big of a distance it is between Israel and the canal? Yeah, uh, I don't know offhand. Okay, but um, so and there's a here's a picture of some of the ships that you just like sank in the canal just so were they their ships like ships that belonged to just any ships they would just take possession of ships and just sink them to create obstacles yes okay so nobody could use it that's what i thought okay and then there's some of the rating on some of the egyptian positions oh my god so yeah so it's um you know war is happening Uh, on november 5th Anglo-French paratroopers landed at key points along the canal with heavy resistance. So now we're on November 5th. So few, like about a week has passed since this whole thing has started. But by this time, international and domestic reaction had quickly soured on the operation. So now everybody knows that, like, you know, Britain, France, Israel, they're doing this. And the rest of the world isn't exactly happy about it. Yeah, they're, they're all pissed. Yeah. No wonder. Eden had failed to account for the swing in public opinion in the four months since nationalization. He waited four months to do this. The British public, still exhausted of war, had accepted Egyptian control of the canal as a fait accompli. So it's like, well, they took it. We can't do anything about it. It's fine. Whatever. Uh, He had also made the case that the Egyptians would mismanage the canal because, of course, he thinks like, oh, well, they're not up to the job. Because they're, you know, the natives. Oh, my God. Yeah, a lot of racism here. I hate this. Yep. Uh, But shipping had largely been unaffected by the Egyptian takeover. Because they actually knew what they they were doing. And they, yeah, they need, people need to get their goods. Yeah. And they also had a vested interest in in keeping it open because they're making probably a ton of money by allowing people to pass through this canal that they have sole control over. Yep. And, it, and like, even Egypt had said like, "We'll cop it." Like they were gonna pay like the stock price of yeah, the uh, yeah. company. Like on the day they, it's like they weren't just like they were gonna pay you for it. Wow, e- what boneheads! Yeah. Well, Eden had also badly misjudged the American reaction, thinking that you, the United States would, if not openly support the invasion, would stay out of it. However, President Dwight Eisenhower refused to give Britain any leeway. Surprise. He felt that if the United States backed Britain and France, then it would lose the Arab world to Soviet influence. He also felt the Uni- that the United States could not back an act of neocolonialism when it favored decolonization around the world. Oh, God. So, makes sense why the United States would not be gung-ho about this. So weird, because it's... Was Israel our ally at this point? Yes. They, they, sh- they should have been, right? Yeah. And Israel was debt was in on this yep and britain is our ally they were in on it yeah britain france they're like we're all part of nato yeah so but you know the united states is like no "No." we we, no we're not gonna sell you guns and we're not gonna support this 
not going to sell Nassar guns. Yeah, they weren't going to sell, and they sold Israel, but they weren't going to support Britain and France. Yeah, but the, they're they are doing the what is what what did you say? No align, not align thing. Well, they're basically just staying out of it. Yeah, they're so, not. They're like leave us out of it. The United States exerted pressure on Britain and France to withdraw through the United Nations, where it sponsored a resolution to create a peacekeeping force, and through their own Treasury Department, which held millions of pounds in British war bonds. Oh, great. Cool. Britain has no money, and we're like, all right, cool. Well, we're yeah, going to take you, your purse if strings. If you don't leave, we're going to cash in all these war bonds, and you're going to owe us even more. Great. Cool. Well, I mean, it's a way to get them to leave. So, sure. I mean, yeah. it's... I know. It's yeah. just... It's like just one bad decision after another, and then these consequences are compounding. Oh, yeah. In a rare moment of not, I don't want to say cooperation, but being on the same side for once, the Soviet Union also backed the removal of British and French forces. So it's weird. The United States and the Soviet Union are both telling them, like, just leave. <laughs> Probably one of the last world post-World War II uh, yeah, it's alignments uh, now, of... Now, the Soviets went a little further than the Americans did because the Soviets threatened to, A, send troops to Egypt to forcibly remove the British and the French. Oh, God. And Nikita Khrushchev even threatened to nuke London at one point. Oh, God. Uh, Was he serious? Or was he just, like, jawing? Nikita Khrushchev is infamous for jawing. Oh, okay. So So he's just talking. Yes. Okay. Under this pressure from all sides, Eden announced a ceasefire and a pause in operations on November the 6th. Without informing France and Israel. Oh, my God. Despite despite military victory. Like, they took the canal. What a donkey. Like, their military objectives were accomplished. But, yeah, uh, he, did, he did inform the other two people who's invading with it. There's a ceasefire now. So. What a stupid donkey. Yeah, you think for some guy who'd been foreign secretary for 15 years, he probably would have known a little better. Send the memo, stupid. Yep. Uh, so, ceasefire on December 22nd, 1956. So, they're still there for a few months. British and French troops withdrew from the canal zone. Israeli troops left the Sinai in March 1957. A neutral UN peacekeeping force moved in to restore order. It's been like five months. Yeah. Yikes. Well, they had to organize. Because this is the first time the UN, like a peacekeeping force, has ever been formed from the UN. Okay. So it's like they have to figure out like how to get all this stuff working together, like all that type of thing. Peacekeeping force sounds like an oxymoron to me. It does. (laughs) I know what you mean. Uh, The canal was cleared of debris and reopened by April 1957. Wow, six months. It started, blew a bunch of stuff up, Yep. uh, sank a bunch of ships, basically blocked the canal, and then six months later, ready to go. Yep. But in the meantime, what did that do for trade routes? They had they had to go around Africa. Lord, a lot of probably cost a lot of people some money. A lot of people some money and a lot of goods getting stopped. Yep. Uh, or or waylaid, delayed. Yep. Yep. Uh, similar to twenty twenty one United <laughs> States. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, or, uh, was it was that or was it last year or twenty twenty one that ship blocked the canal for like a week, like oh a week or so? I didn't even think about that. I was more yeah. just thinking about. Do you remember like tra- everybody was like chain? losing their minds, like oh my god? Yeah, yeah. It's like well, I mean, 
a ship. And that was just like like a week or so. Yeah, like a, <laughs> a ship. I think it just like broke it down. It got stuck. It got stuck. Right? It like got up on top of one of the barriers on the side and it was yeah. stuck there and it blocked the whole thing. Yeah. People were freaking out. And yeah, that was only a so. week instead of six months. And this is also a time when uh, air freight is a thing, but certainly not as common. Yeah, it's like nascent. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. this would have a great deal of lasting effects. Both co- like both from shipping merchants and countries trying to get their stuff from point A to point B, probably gas prices. Well, I mean just the whole crisis in general. Oh, okay. So, um, as I mentioned, first time an armed multinational UN peacekeeping force had been deployed. And they would remain there until June 1967. So they're there for another decade. Holy shit. Sh- sh- uh, Egyptian ownership of the Suez Canal was confirmed and accepted by the United Nations. Uh, Soviet threats were seen as influential in forcing a ceasefire. This perception pushed Soviet Premier N- N- uh, Nikita Khrushchev to act more aggressively in, negoti- in interactions with the West, such as during the 1958 Berlin Crisis and the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh boy. So he's, he's encouraged to like, okay... This is how I get them to at least uh, come to the table, you know, take us seriously. I need to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. So That's the only thing these animals will respond to, these animals yes. in the colonial countries. So up to this point, Britain and France, though still recovering from the Second World War, were perceived to still be two of the world's premier powers. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of these colonial empires, they're propped up on the perception of power. Sure, yeah. Not necessarily, like, sure, Britain could, you know, flood India. With, I mean, India's independent at this point. But they sure, they could flood India with, you know, five million troops. But that would be enormously expensive to do so. It would take a long time. Take a long time. So, like, it, you know, they'd just have, a, you know, some thousand that, you know, maybe tens of thousands of troops there. Well, and I was going to say, like, if all of the colonies that they made called up at the same time and said, no, we don't want to be a part of this colonial yeah, empire they, they, anymore, yeah, they, they would been... be impossible to fight. Yeah. So, like, it's all, it's a lot of it is about the perception of power. Right, right. So. And, like, the effort that it takes to, you know, take control of your country. It takes effort. I mean, hell. We're we're seeing that in Russia and Ukraine right now. Yep. <laughs> Russia was seen as one of the world's premier powers, and now we're seeing it's the, struggling mightily. It's Swiss cheese yeah. against a a fairly small country. I mean, Ukraine in comparison to Russia, oh, yeah. is small, very yeah. small. Yep. And they're you know they surprise attacked, and then yeah. Ukraine's like, yeah, no, and Russia is failing yeah. miserably now, granted ukraine is getting a massive amount of help from the west right. and other countries but yeah sure. but still it's like the perception beforehand like oh well ukraine's gonna fall in like a week yeah I mean, it's like no we're going on like a year and a half now so yeah uh the failure of britain and france to withstand the external pressures to withdraw from suez led to a fundamental shift in how they were perceived no longer were they seen as all-powerful, globe-spanning empires with robust militaries, but as has-been countries, forced to acquiesce to the, re- to the two real powers in the world, the Soviet Union and the United States. Oh, no. This, okay. this perception in British and French might had kept their colonies mostly in line. With that perception gone, the collapse of their empires was inevitable. 
Over the next 15 years, rapid decolonization took hold. The UK granted independence to 32 of its colonies, while France granted independence to 17. Wow. Like, much of Africa is decolonized at this time. Uh, I mean, they don't really have much left in their empires after this. Um, that means they still have some areas, but in a lot of ways, it's almost like they decolonized almost too fast. Because mm, yeah. they kind of were just like, all right, we need to get out of here. All right, see you, bye. Instead and, of like leaving these countries like with a stable, like healthy, or at least beginnings of a reasonable democracy and... Or even country, even some sort of structure like, at all, because like so many of them just fell into dictatorships afterwards. So there are so many instances when the withdrawal of the colonial power causes a country basically to implode on itself, U.S. and Iraq, and leave a vacuum that ends up, you know, being run by terrorists or yep. a dictator or yep. a military government or something like that. So. Um, the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, uh, is a great example of that. I'm thinking of Estonia specifically, because for whatever reason, I know a lot about Estonia since they have that digital government thing. <laughs> After I watched that TED talk on them, I'm like fascinated by them. But yeah. Estonia is is an example. You know, the Soviet Union dissolved. Estonia has zero government, literally no government, and they were basically like, "Well, guess we got to figure it out." But that's also a country in Eastern Europe versus already a poor country. You know, uh, um, speaking of Africa specifically, when you have colonial powers basically taking entire control and also all of the money, because the colonizers are the ones making the cash. Yeah, like the resources have been flowing out of these places for a century or more at this point. So not only do they not have any sort of government structure, they also have no infrastructure to support their own people yeah no economic infrastructure to really rely on but yeah so and and there's going to be a mass exodus of people too you know people who have been living there supporting this country supporting the colonizers like a brain drain yeah so so people are going to be leaving because they're like well yeah i'm basically immediately in a third world country now now that's not we're not saying oh they should still should have remained colonies we're not saying that at all we're just saying there needs to be transition forces, you know. Yeah, like a like a stable transition that's like more thorough than just all right, see you, bye. Yeah, or like tell people how to run things. Yeah, you know. So, uh, the lack of support from the United States damaged Franco-American relations, which led France to, the, to begin the development of its own nuclear bomb. Great. Which was achieved in 1960. More nukes is always the solution. I say sarcastically. Yeah. Uh, the special relationship between Britain and the United States would survive, but the power in the relationship shifted permanently towards America. So. Mm. I feel like it was it was on a on that trajectory. It was post World War Two. This kind of like pushes it through the door. You know, because Britain was like this huge, huge worldwide superpower post or, or beginning of World War Two, and by the end of World War Two, America is the hero, yeah, and not Britain. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I feel like we were like the the smiling like thumbs up American you know military and Britain's like, oh God, yep, and therefore and and consequences would never be the same. Uh, Israel's involvement pushed Nasser into authoritarian measures against Egypt's Jewish population. Oh God, over twenty five thousand were forced from the country. 
because they're taking out their hatred against Israel on them. Mm. God. The antagonistic relationship also damaged the Palestinian liberation movement, as fewer Israelis supported reconciliation with the Palestinians. Oh my god. It's fascinating to me that the creation of Israel as a state threads its way through so many major world events post-World War II. Oh, yeah. Especially, like, I mean, you could argue it's been the driving American foreign policy for probably after, you know, containment of communism. It's support for Israel is probably right there since World War, this the end of the Second World War. Wow. So, uh, almost immediately after the UN peacekeeping forces withdrew from the Canal Zone in June 1967, Israel attacked Egypt again. Oh, God. The resulting six-day war was a resounding victory for Israel as it captured the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the West Bank from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. Wow, so they basically just took that entire area. Yeah, they basically expanded to what is kind of their current borders. Um... I know that could be a touchy subject to even talk about, but and then plus the Sinai Peninsula. Wow. The canal was once again closed, this time for years. Holy crap, seriously? Like, this is June 67. It wouldn't reopen until June 1975. Because wow. Israel's just in control of one side of it, so it's like... Uh, it's got to be kind of awkward to manage the canal. Sure, yeah. Um the Sinai was returned to Egypt following the 1979 peace treaty. Like, you know, like Jimmy Carter, Camp David Accords, like that peace treaty. Nasser would continue as president of Egypt until his death on September 28, 1970, age 52. Wow. So think about it. He was barely... Let's see, he was born in... Da, 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 1918. All this takes place in, like, night, the Suez Crisis is 1956. He's only a few years older than us when, he, when like, the, all this is happening. Cool. <laughs> no way. No way, man. So. Sorry. Uh, to this day, he is regarded as a hero in the Arab world in general and Egypt in particular. The reservoir created by the Aswan Dam, funded by canal proceeds and Soviet assistance, is called Lake Nasser. Mm. Makes sense. And this is a little side note to this. Uh, the flag thing I mentioned earlier. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Lester Pearson won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in resolving the crisis. Um, and so, like, Canadians make up a large portion of the peacekeeping force. Okay. Well, at this time, the Canadian flag was still, like, the shield, like, on a field of red with the British Union Jack in the top mm -hmm. left corner. You might have seen it before. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Well, Nasser was complaining about this because he didn't want the peacekeeping force wearing the Union Jack. Oh. And this wasn't the sole thing, but this kind of like was one of the things that pushed Canada to adopt the modern day maple leaf flag. Oh, nice. So, yeah, that's cool. So. Uh, Anthony Eden's political career did not survive the crisis. <laughs> he resigned <laughs> on January 9th, 1957, ostensibly due to ill health, uh -huh. and was succeeded by Harold Macmillan. But, because British aristocracy and leadership could only ever fall upwards, Eden was created the Earl of Avon in July 1961. Of course he was. 
Because, it, like, this is still a time when, like, if you were a prime minister, like, once you retired from public life, you would just be given an earldom. Or, or some other title and sit in the House of Lords. Cool. W- Winston Churchill, I'll give him credit for this. He, uh, um, after he retired after being prime minister last time, Elizabeth II offered to make him the Duke of London. <laughs> and he declined. Good. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, because, like, his son had a political career, and that kind of would have ended it, because as soon as Churchill died, his son would have inherited his title, and he wouldn't be able to serve the House of Commons anymore. So, Oh, I see. So. I see. And that's not really, yeah, it's not really done anymore. The last PM to get a title after he after his career was over was Harold Macmillan. That was, like, the early 80s. Like, none of them, so like, like they may be uh, created what's called a life peer. Okay. It's basically like their title doesn't survive them, like their children don't inherit it. I see. So it's just kind of like a lifetime achievement award. Yeah. <laughs> like okay. uh, Margaret Thatcher had one. She was like Baroness Thatcher. It's called peerage, right? Yes. That, okay. I've heard of the the practice. Um, a few of them have declined. Like, oh, Tony Blair declined it. Um. So, but. Do you think Boris Johnson will decline? Do you think he'll even be offered one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who who technically offers it? That like the, the monarch. crown, the monarch. Okay, yeah. don't know, don't know. I mean, Prince Charles was BFFs with uh, King Charles. King, uh, yeah, King that's, Charles. That's, that's still worth it. That's a still weird doesn't thing taste to say, good. Isn't it? Doesn't taste good. No. in my mouth. No. Uh, King Charles uh, was best friends with that uh, Jimmy. What's his face guy? Savile. Jimmy Savile. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you never know. He got knighted. So. And he was top advisor to. Yep. At the time, Prince Charles. Yeah. The yeah. monarch formerly known as Prince. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, Eden died on January 14th, 1977, age 79. He refused to accept any blame for the disaster, saying, quote, I have no apologies to offer, end quote. Wow. At least he kept it short. He didn't, like, you know, wax poetic on it. He was just yeah. like, don't care. Yep. Did the thing. Yep. Gosh. So, uh, Moshi Dayan, you know, I, I wanted to know about his eye patch because, well, yeah, it's something, it's a curiosity. So, uh, I actually read up on him. Um, he was actually aligned, allied with, uh, the United Kingdom, um, initially. He, at the age of 14, he joined the Jewish Defense Force. So, like, he was hardcore, you know, from a very young age. But the way he got his eye patch, um, he was actually in the, uh, the night before the Syria Lebanon campaign before the invasion. Um, he was on, he cro- his unit crossed the border, um, w- when they were securing the two bridges over the Latani, the Latani river. Um, he served under the command of British Lieutenant General, Sir Henry Maitland Wilson, which I think he's famous for some other stuff, uh, Second Boer War, First World War, all kinds of stuff. Anyways, he was using binoculars. He was on the roof of a building using binoculars to scan Vichy French positions on the other side of the river, of the Litani River. But the binoculars got hit by a French sniper. And so it sent a bunch of metal and glass into his eyeball. Ow. And, and it took... So uh, it was several hundred yards away. 
And he had to sit there for six hours before they could be evacuated because the snipers were laying down fire. He said he would have died if not for Bernard Dov Prater, who took care of him until they were evacuated. So he lost the eye and the muscles, so he couldn't get a glass eye. So that's why he had to have the patch. Um, And that became his trademark. So, yeah. He he really, really, really wanted to be re-enlisted in combat, but... He couldn't yeah. because he was missing an but eye. When Israel became a state, they're like, we just need experienced bodies. Here, you're a general. <laughs> and, so. I mean, he like his military career still continued. He just couldn't be in active combat. Yeah. Um, he also went on to be, um, he was chief of staff at one point in time. Oh, yeah. Like, there's, I think, Ariel Sharon, who was prime minister, like, during our lifetimes, the 21st century, like, he served during, during this time. He was like a... Head of like a special forces unit, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so. He was also defense minister. Yeah. He actually met with Nixon several times. <laughs> uh, yeah, gold. I think it's pronounced Golda Meir. Yes. Uh, when when after Golda Meir became prime minister, Diane stayed on as uh, defense minister. So Yom Kippur War, he was there. So so. Super interesting. I just wanted to highlight that because I don't know when we're ever going to be able to uh, talk about him again, um, especially because he's joined the, I believe it's it's either Haganah or Haganah at the age of 14. When Britain had the mandate over Palestine, there was a lot of unrest there. I think that was like maybe one of the militant groups that was there. So maybe not great, but yeah. Sources for this episode. Saeed Burish, Nasser, The Last Arab from 2004. Isaac Alteris, Eisenhower in Israel from 1993. L.J. Butler, Britain and Empire, 2002. Ronald Hyam, Britain's Declining Empire from 2006. Robert Rhodes James, Anthony Eden from 1986. Keith Kyle, Suez, Britain's End of Empire from 2003. Scott Lucas, Britain and Suez from 1996. David Nichols, Eisenhower, 1956 from 2012. Alex von Toselman, Blood and Sand from 2016. And Peter Woodward, Nasser from 1992. So, a lot, lot, lot of sources in this. So, But yeah, go listen to it. Uh, so, pretty, pretty solid. Has the We Have to Up stamp of approval. So, not that any podcast really needs that. What are we talking about next time? Uh, next time, it was episode 42. 42. Answer to life, the universe, and everything. Uh, yep. 42. What did I say? Oh. Something we haven't done in a while. Something funny? Doesn't result in actual casualties? No. Oh. We haven't done about a Roman emperor in a while. Oh, your favorite. Roman. Yep, yep. Roman empires. Emperor Honorius. Emperor yes, Honorius. And his pet chickens. Pet, that This sounds like my kind of emperor. I like chickens. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm probably going to eat my words, eh? Mm, Possibly. Okay. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEffedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We We Have 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 Have